Hello and welcome back to Meeting Musos. This week's episode is with media composer, YouTube vlogger and co-founder of Spitfire Audio, Christian Henson. During our conversation, Christian talks to me about how bullies and narcissists have shaped his attitude towards work, the need for the music industry to adapt more quickly to the ever-changing technologies and platforms available, and why he believes YouTube can be a useful platform for young composers looking to break into the industry. Enjoy the conversation. So, Christian, you wear a number of different hats, uh, working as a, as a composer, as a, a YouTuber, and also running, you know, the huge success that is Spitfire. Each one of those feels like a full-time job. How on earth do you manage to fit it all in? And why on earth have you decided to be so busy? <laughs> um, I think if I, if I, if I was to be candid, uh, I was really terribly bullied as a kid. Um, and the one thing I did notice about bullies was they were all bone idle. So whilst I felt very much lesser to those individuals, um, I was a late, late developer and all of that kind of stuff, red hair, didn't, didn't change my accent, went to a nasty, rough, comprehensive school. Um, the one thing I noticed is that they were bone idle. And I thought, well, I may not be better than those people, but I can outwork them. And I think that, for me, it's almost a survival instinct, uh, for me is that that is my uh how i can get ahead of those types is to simply outwork them i wouldn't say it's a particularly sensible thing to do I, I went to the doctors about five or six years ago and um he looked at my stats and he went what is going on and i said well uh, the job of being a composer is pretty pretty tough and he goes yeah but i've got other clients who have tough jobs i go well i've also got this company and he said you have to pick one and that was a very difficult moment in my life. And that was kind of preempted me moving to Scotland. And basically, I've put myself into this really rather lovely position now, where as a composer, I only work with people I really like on things that are really good. And that seems to, to, to work. And um, it hasn't impacted on my earnings as a composer, funnily enough, because I've got rid of all of these overheads and stuff. And I think that's been a, a good life lesson. But also where Spitfire is concerned, um, I've had as much joy out of creating sounds and the people I meet through Spitfire as I have had in kind of satisfying that childhood dream of being a composer. It seems that given the success you've had as a composer, you know, a great position to be in now where you are able to be really selective about which work you choose to take on. What is it that makes that decision for you? Is it the, the people involved? Is it the the nature of the work? What's the deciding factor? Yes, I think for me, I, I, I've got a character type that doesn't work very well with narcissists. And the the film and entertainment and music industry does attract narcissists. And I've definitely suffered at the hands of narcissistic abuse. I mean, I think if I was to cite my lowest point with a narcissist, it was when I actually left my honeymoon to go for a, a spotting session. Um, the director, it, it was such a narcissistic injury that I would get um, married and dare to go off on honeymoon for five days that he just basically threatened... Uh, 
to fire me off the job unless I abandoned my honeymoon. Um, so I've developed quite a, um, a well-honed nardar, as I call it, for uh, these people. <laughs> a simple rule is if you walk into a room feeling good about yourself and walk out of that room feeling bad about yourself, you've been the subject to narcissistic uh, uh, kind of abuse. And I think something I've also noticed is I, there's a certain point at which I see see it happens with composers. There's a certain point at which they become completely intolerant of difficult clients. And I've realised what it is. It's it's the point at which you do something brilliant with people who are brilliant and lovely. You then go back to work with arseholes and go, hang on a minute, this is totally unnecessary. (laughs) Um, And I think that's very much the case. So it's about... It's about people I have a track record with. Um, it's about my agent kind of saying, yes, and these people seem really lovely. This is a long-term project, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I'm really fortunate because the, the job I've been doing, I think nearly for 10 years now, uh, uh, one of the maybe one or two jobs that I do a year um, is a series called Inside Number Nine for Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton, who are not only the biggest geniuses I've ever worked with in show business, but they're also the nicest people who really respect the process. And and so that's just a joy. You, you mentioned your move to Edinburgh, and I wonder how that fits in to all of this, the, the decision to actually take yourself out of London and and be based somewhere where you can... I guess, work from home before it was a legal requirement. Um, when, when did you make that decision and, and why did you decide to do it? Well, I think what I've noticed over the years is, um, I, I guess I've been doing this since 1997 uh, professionally. And I think the first five or six years, you used to play host to, comp- to directors a lot. They would come and work with you. You'd do screening sessions. And they'd maybe even sit with you whilst you tweaked some of the uh, uh, media. I've just, I'm making myself smile because I'm remembering another narcissist who said, uh, you're, not allowed, you're not allowed to write anything for my, uh, my uh, film uh, unless I'm in the room, which is... Uh, wow. Yeah, and he'd <laughs> sit at the back of the room and I'd be playing stuff in and he'd go, no, no, uh-huh. no, yes, yeah, like that, no, not that. It was just like... Um, uh, What's the name of that Python guy who who directs films? He's the artist, the American um, Terry Gilliam. Yeah, I remember. I remember him talking about composers saying, "You have to keep those bastards close because they can change shit up." <laughs> <laughs> so I think there is there is a degree of kind of narcissistic injury in working with composers and it really brings the worst out in in the narcissists that are are out there um uh, but but something i did notice is is that basically because of the the digital revolution in editing and because of the uh the the number of channels and outlets number of films being made these days that basically director's time has really been cut down in the post-production process and instead of it being a linear process as it used to be in the past where you had kind of a laboratories involved first you did your ADR then you did your coloring you did your editing ADR you know it was all kind of a linear process it's now been stacked and basically uh, what I have found is I cannot remember the last time I actually played host to a director sitting with me so the geographical requirement isn't there from a professional point of view However, I do think if you're starting out, it is it is still, um, uh, I think, uh, 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 crucial. Right. So for anyone who's listening to this thinking I can be a composer and, and you know, start, do it from my bedroom in Grimsby, 
that's yes. maybe not the case. I think that that's. I think a lot of people really trick themselves into thinking that that is the case. There's this kind of open marketplace that be, that is based on the internet, and it just simply isn't the case. It's 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 it's. I mean, I'm, I, I repeat myself till I'm blue in the face about this, but composing music as a film and TV and games composer, is a tiny part of what we do. What you're actually paid to do is to be a head of department. And that is something that you, uh, that you build the skill set for through experience. You can't be taught that at school. Um, so it's all about building a network of, of contacts. And so often it'll be about assisting composers. And that doesn't necessarily mean being a composer's assistant. It'll mean, well, for me, it was drum programming. I used to help composers out by programming drums for them and stuff. So um, I do think it is very important. I mean, I can say that there are several composers who have really, like, burst through and are, are just absolutely white hot at the moment. And I think the thing that I noticed in all of them was very good use of self-marketing. That sounds like a horrible thing, but I, I mean that in, it, you're a business and, you, you know, you market it like any other business. But they were everywhere. I saw them at every single seminar that I did. I saw them at every single event. And it is, it is about people at the end of the day, and you've got to work yourself into that, that community. I'd love to talk a little bit about your roots into music and into composition because I know that you come from a family of very well respected and very well known performers um, hugely successful in different parts of the the business when was it clear to you that you were going to have a career in music when they put me off being an actor and I'm, I will be <laughs> I will be forever thankful for that um, yeah I mean I guess the thing that Growing up with the showbiz family, I think you just got to understand um, that it was make-believe earlier on in life. And I think that we used to analyse stuff where probably other families don't, like good acting, bad acting, a good score, a bad score. Other than that, it's not been any help whatsoever, really. Uh, they're on the other side of the camera. Um, so my routine was, I, as I had mentioned, I went to quite a rough comprehensive school in West London, but it was very close to the BBC TV centre, which actually, uh, with hindsight, was actually became the factory on the hill. And regardless of what my friends studied in university, they, um, they all ended up kind of being researchers at the BBC. Um, and whilst they were all in university, uh, after I uh, gave up my job as a baker, um, I started writing music for porn films in the day that, days that it used to pay quite well because porn in this country uh, it's only relatively recently that it's been legalized um so basically there was this this kind of hack that they'd do where it would be educational videos um <laughs> and they were kind of very high production values so i started doing that and that's where i kind of got my experience of writing music to picture and my pals when they started working at the bbc said well my friend does that albeit with porn and so they'd throw me a few scraps like maybe a little segment in a travel program that they'd researched this that and the other and that's how it really started and i'd say factual entertainment was my way in yeah and did that did you come from any formal music training into that no i did to, i got to grade five in the piano um and i what i realize now is i don't know how i did it but because i never worked out how to read music so i think i used to just watch the piano player uh, the, my piano teacher rather and kind of pick up how to play these pieces um i did a level music um which was, um, you know, a really good course. But, yeah, I have to say, unfortunately, I was going to go and study um, composition, but I just had a really um, horrific, narcissistic kind of teacher who 
taught me in my year off because this comprehensive school didn't really give you the foundational skills that you needed to go to music college. Um, I did these kind of masterclasses with this guy who was going to teach at the school I, I was going to go to. And he just said some just stuff that put me off music for about three years. And I have to say, I think it's something that is not uncommon in, in arts being taught in schools, um, uh, particularly with people who really show an interest in these things. Um, yeah, he just said this one thing that just put me off, so that's why I became a baker. So I don't have any formal training. And I guess the, the problem when I was kind of coming up, you know, uh, uh, through the years, you know, in those days, is that there was no internet, so I couldn't find out that Irvin Berlin couldn't read music. And and I don't. I, I think it's not. It's fair to say that Hans Zimmer doesn't have a formal training in that in that that area. But as I say, it's about you know, uh, the, the job of being a media composer is there are so many facets to it. Um, you, you've, there are very few Renaissance men or women out there who can do everything, who are great drum programmers, producers, and can orchestrate and arrange. So you just, you just kind of lean into your strengths, really, and get help where, where, where you're deficient in others. The, the drum programming, um, when you started to do that professionally and working with other composers, was did you see that as a route into media composition or was that something that just came naturally as a result of it? I think that I'd abandoned any hopes of media composition and and I think that this idea of becoming a record producer suddenly prevailed. I thought, well, I, I don't have to orchestrate, I don't have to read music, I don't have to be be particularly good. I'm quite good at computers. And then I thought, well, there's this drum programming thing that really interests me um, and I just, re- I remember just thinking, I want to get really, really good at that. So I just used to just do it all the time. Um, and I, yeah, had this kind of harbored this notion of becoming a, a, a record producer just at the point where orchestral and beats started overlapping. So David Arnold's favorite, fam- uh, famous work that he did with Björk for young Americans, massive attack, William Orbit started doing film scores, and stuff, and uh, suddenly there was a, a generation of pencil and paper composers um, like Anne Dudley, um, who uh, wanted modern drum programming on their scores, and that—that's how I, I got I got that break. Nice. So it ended up being a collaboration with traditional orchestral composition with people who didn't really have the skills to to keep up with the, the current trends. It, it, it was a little bit of that, yes, absolutely, and also. Um, it was, you know, sampling technology and all of that kind of stuff. It was moving at a right old rate in those days. And um, uh, it was, you know, people who had maybe uh, not used samplers in a, in a while. And again, this is, this is the, the, the beauty of, of comp- composing a work as a media composer is, is no matter how experienced you are, uh, you can always learn from someone else. And I think that's what's quite fun about these collaborations is that whilst I learned everything I know about you know, being a head of department from the three years that I programmed for Anne Dudley. Um, she also learnt some stuff from me as well, you know. Uh, speaking of collaboration and sampling, um, I'd love to talk about Spitfire. When did your collaboration with Paul Thompson begin? When did the, the seeds first begin to grow into what is now this incredible company? Yeah, I mean, the, this has never been, we've never planned this at, at any step of the way. And I, I think if I have one piece of entrepreneurial advice for anyone, it's, it's not to think about how something's going to make you money. It's just about 
an idea that you feel hasn't been done and could be done better. And that's what it was with Paul and I. It was, I believe, a bit of serendipity. Uh, basically, I'd sampled this Chirango. I, I went to see Motorcycle Diaries and thought, what's this wonderful instrument that's being played? And it turned out to be a Chirango. I don't play the guitar. So I got my brother to sample it and I said, listen, can you possibly play every note wrong? Because I think that's going to sound more realistic. And I put the sample together and it was the only time in my life when I've said, this is life-changing and it turned out to be a life-changing moment. (laughs) Um, So I started, uh, uh, I guess, trolling a bit on various um, forums and sites of people who have now become Spitfire competitors, um, or we became their competitors rather, um, and I famously got banned off a very famous uh, uh, sample developers um, forum um, uh, and it caused a bit of a stink. And so Paul got in touch with me uh, via, um, it was MySpace of all that. So it, it served a purpose for me. Um, and he said, listen, I've just done this. Um, I'd love to hear your Chirango sample because I've just, I, I that week also did this violin sample with exactly the same principle. And, and I've found that it sounds way more realistic than, than the way that people were making samples back in the day, which was differentiating some, making recordings for samples or making recordings for music. And it was just very simple for us. It was like, why don't you, we just do it exactly the same as, as when you record music and just, just think of it as, performances but in single note form as opposed to um as opposed to these kind of scientifically made samples and um and yes and and so it started and we we ended up talking about it in the pub and um it was just one of those things that that those pubs in soho so many ideas have been cracked over a beer and and never uh, uh, carried through but paul's a very interesting character he really once he has the bit between his teeth he's just off and had it not been for that kind of nature within Paul, I don't think we'd be here today because he really, he really does take the leap. Um, but it's been a great, it's been a great relationship as well as the success of Spitfire. It's it's um, it's worked out very well. And that approach to sampling the sort of warts and all idea and recording these instruments as you would record them, you know, as audio to to be used in whatever context. It's really. It's, it's revolutionised how how these sample libraries are put together, hasn't it? It's complete. It's a totally new approach to something that has been existing for so long. Yes, I think so. I was sitting there. I remember. I remember the moment very clearly. I was sitting in my in my in my studio flat in 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 Rupert Street in in Soho, and I was using this instrument, and it sounded so realistic. But I just couldn't understand why anyone would want it to sound like that unless you were possibly, I hate to be rude of, of, of uh, fellow music makers, but unless you were possibly Sting. It was just <laughs> so pristine and gorgeous. And I wasn't into Sting. I was into Radiohead and, mm. um, and stuff. So I was just like, why, why, why would you make it like that? It's, it does sound like it's something that's been done scientifically. And then we kind of analysed how people were making orchestral samples in those days and recording them in totally anechoic spaces with no uh, ambience whatsoever. But also, uh, anecdotally, uh, they would get the, the, the musicians to find the notes before they played it. So it just sounded like tuning tones in mm. the vacuum of space. 
And I think one of the key motivators for us wanting to not create samples that way is Paul and I were at the kind of bleeding edge of media composition, really scrabbling around for work. And, you know, I'd often be 15 jobs deep. And I just simply didn't have time to make this stuff sound good. You could make it sound good, but boy, did you have to work with it. Could you not bake it to tape with all of the bits in that you liked? Like, for example, tape. Like it being, it's sounding like it's being recorded in a room and recorded by a human being. It was difficult at first because when we first went commercial, people would often write in and say, listen, this, this trumpet note here is unacceptable. And we just go, just believe us, just use it, use mm. it. Because it would be those, like, for example, when you're getting a trumpeter to belt in the gods at triple F, you know, they're only going to hit the right, the right note 50% of the time. It's going to be way off. I mean, if you listen to the score for The Invincibles, the trumpets are really fruity in that. But that's what gives it the life and the humanity. Um, so it took a lot of convincing at first. And that's why back in the day, all of our packaging was all distressed and stuff. So that I mean, right. that was the, the thing was, I, I remember saying to Paul, listen, we'll do this Albion thing. I'll do really distressed packaging. So we'll say, well, what gave you the impression this was going to be a pristine library? The packaging's all scratched up and all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> so that was a pragmatic uh, uh, artist, artistic choice at that point. Nice. Um, so this podcast is all about the lives and the careers of, of different professional musicians and something that Spitfire do, which is really interesting, is they pay the musicians royalties. I wonder, I know that you, you, your family have history with, with unions and I believe your grandfather was one of the founding members of Equity. Um, is that where this comes from or is it through your work with orchestral musicians? Why was that so important to, to you and Paul? I, well, I, it was a joke at first. It's like you, you're a, a union lad. Um, well, at first also, we have to remember we've been doing this for nearly 13 years now. And 13 years ago, even though samplers had been around for 20 odd years by that point, there was still a massive amount of distrust that basically uh, they were going to be playing themselves out of a job. Obviously, this is the mistake the music industry makes time and time again. So I just said, you know, I just think we need to bring them along for the ride. And again, I think that would be my secret of entrepreneurial success is, is to start from a generous perspective because they have become our backbone, those contributors. And, um, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm really, really proud that we gave back nearly £5 million in royalties last year. And we don't, wow. we don't even see it as our money. It doesn't, it, the way it appears in our accounts, it's like we never have that money. Um, and I just think, well, it's just great to find a new, real, legitimate earning stream for for musicians. They they get paid very well on the day, so they're 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 so much more collaborative if they feel they've got skin in the game. And um, yeah, yeah. Do you do you feel that because of these royalty agreements and bringing them along for the ride, as you put it, that they you get more from them on the day? Do you, do you find that you end up with a better product by really investing the time in looking after them from the outset? Absolutely. For anyone who's ever worked in music, you know, I'm sure everyone who's worked in music has done a vocal session at some point. You know what happens if you piss a, a, a vocalist off. You're no good for the rest of the day. And it's exactly the same with these wonderful instruments. And, and you know, sampling is really, really tough. It's really boring. It's, it's very 
very um it's physically very demanding on 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 players particularly the players that aren't playing all the time in the orchestra just actually physically holding up a trumpet for three hours is very odd for a trumpeter because they're usually sitting there counting bars um so i absolutely feel that um and it's just proud to i'm proud to go on this journey with them but particularly it was when that first royalty check out went went out those first royalty checks went out rather um over the uh, the lockdown you go well the, the, the musicians are continuing to earn some money from us at least um and and i think that it was welcome in terms of the future of the recording industry taking that that model the royalty model if the sampling is as good as as you guys are making it and the musicians are being paid royalties, where does that leave orchestral recording sessions for TV and film in the future? Is there still a place for that? Or do you see this being the route that the the industry will go down? I absolutely see. I I think that orchestral sampling... uh, continues to legitimise the use of real orchestras. It, but it puts composers together with um, orchestras. I've, I've yet to meet, and I've met tens of thousands of composers, I've yet to meet a composer who doesn't want to work with a live orchestra. Um, the, it's the nuances, it's what you can... I mean, what's great about London uh, musicians is they can act with their instruments, so it's get, getting, letting them get inside the character as well. What I see sampling as... If it is, if you're do, using just samples and you're not using a live orchestra, is you're just inserting that performance at a different part of the workflow. So it's happening whilst you're composing, not after you've composed. But I know how difficult it is to book time in Abbey Road and Air Studios because those places are booked out months and months and months in advance. I know there's talk of, of new spaces being built in London uh, because of the amount of content that's being made and uh, the studios. Uh, the the new players, the Netflixes, the Apples, the Amazons of this world understand the value of of live orchestras as, as well and are banging down the doors of studios to get in there to work with uh, British musicians. Um, so uh, it's it literally is the opposite effect that people imagine with sampling. It creates it creates a need. And when you're when you're writing and working with these samples and and composing. What does that process look like for you if, if the end product is going into the the studio and, and recording with live musicians? Are you writing individual lines and thinking as an orchestrator or are you how does that how does that work when you're sat at the keyboard composing? I don't really think as an orchestrator, um, but I do try and get it sounding as real as humanly possible because the the, the, the kind of budget level I work at, you're looking at doing an entire film score, recording an entire film score in two, three-hour sessions. That's I very rarely get more more than that. So basically, what you don't want is any input from the director. So I've got a great team that takes you know my MIDI demos and make them sound the same with an orchestra, but better. And I think that the way that I would describe the difference between MIDI uh, uh, MIDI stuff like fully sampled stuff and the hybrid and, and stuff that has live musicians on is is midi will get your hairs up on the back of your neck if the composition's good the live players will make you cry and i think that is that is the fundamental difference and i've learned over the years because i it's very rare that i don't uh, use a kind of a hybrid of a mixture of samples and um and orchestra i think that that is a sound that people have got used to there's a thickness in samples a, a weight that i think you often miss unless you've got a really really big band um 
And um, I've I've kind of learnt to know what orchestras do really well and samples do really badly. And I'll just uh, uh, I'll, I'll design the session so that you're playing into those strengths. So mm-hmm. I, I never bother with getting orchestras to play pizzicatos and all of that kind of stuff. You know, the sweeping top lines and those beautiful um, cello counter melodies, uh, I'll, I'll get the band to do and let me plonk away on my pizzicatos on my keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> um, as a composer, do you find yourself, and in particular, I suppose, writing for film and, and TV where there's there's so much content you know, being produced at the moment with all the streaming services and there's a real um, a real thirst for it. Do you find yourself trying to push boundaries and discover new ideas or how much of what you do, is there, is there an element of sort of following the zeitgeist and whether that be because of the brief you've been given or just subconsciously through your own work? Well, I think it's a combination of all of those things, really. I think that um, something that I've learnt recently i think it's growing up is that i don't need to reinvent the wheel every time i do something people are booking me for me mm. and there's a few chord sequences that i like using a lot and you know the kind of stuff i work on not many people see anyway so uh um so there's a bit of that i think it's you really really need to be aware of the zeitgeist but I, what i would always recommend people doing is to not listen to film and tv music is, is to be more to consume TV and film, to, to watch it, I think is good. You get you hear people's tricks and all of that kind of stuff. But I, I think kind of composition and creativity is like, like an engine. You've got to put the best fuel in, and that is by listening to really, really good music. And finally, it's often the client who asks you to reinvent the wheel and wants you to do something totally different. And I think it's something that Hans has proven over the years is, is that coming up with a really good concept, I think, can be great for the creative process so um yeah i i'm working on a a a horror film at the moment and um uh, i decided just to to beat up a piano and to use that as the kind of central sound of of this score and it's just nice because it gives gives it an identity and and um that is unique and i think that's a lovely thing to achieve there's so many people uh, doing amazing really original stuff at the moment mandalorian is something that's totally surprised me you know it's a star wars franchise and it's done on a recorder hurrah i knew we'd be cool one day um, yeah I, I mean the thing that i would say though it's it's just as a general point that i think finding your own voice is just if you don't do that you're out to sea really and you're just you'll be you'll be a journeyman and that this is coming from experience and i just i find that you know if like me not trained in music don't don't know how to make jazz chords don't modulate much and it's like well i just lean into that lean into the simplicity of my my skill set spitfire has seen collaborations with some huge names including Hans Zimmer, uh, the BBC SO, Eric Whitaker, quite recently as well. Did you ever expect it to be as successful as that and to, to be at that level? And where where on earth do you take it from here? What does the future of a Spitfire look like? Well, I think that what's really exciting about it being about people and performances is that it basically means we can go on forever because there are so there will be different people coming along and with different ways of performing stuff i think the old-fashioned approach to sampling was okay i've got my guitar got my light you know this guitar sample inspired me to to do the opposite of that was actually called nylon guitar and it's like okay so i've got one of them now don't need another one 
<laughs> um, whereas we're going, well, this is a felt piano in Olafur's studio and this is a felt piano. And it's all, it's a, you know, for me, it's about choice. It's about giving people as much choice as humanly possible so we're not all using the same tools. And I think that there mm. was a point maybe five years ago where things were coming in, becoming incredibly homogenous. Where, and you wouldn't know whether, if you switch your, your, your kind of, if you closed your eyes, you wouldn't know whether you were listening to some kind of uh, epic um, Greek tragedy or MasterChef. The music was interchangeable. <laughs> and I think it's just wonderful that uh, we've passed through that and people are understanding that character is important as well. Um, I'd love to talk about your journey on YouTube um, because you've got this hugely successful channel where you very generously share so much of your experience to the point of actually bringing the cameras in and, and giving a fly on the wall perspective of you working on these incredible orchestral sessions. Um, what was your motivation for starting the channel and for making these videos? It was suggested to me by the now CEO of Spitfire, basically that I, I was going on these walks with my dog in the park in, uh, in Edinburgh and um, I just would come up with loads of ideas and then just pester the team with all of these ideas. And he said, they're all good, all good ideas, but we can't do them all. So we need to channel your creativity. I think well, what happened basically is I, I, Paul and I used to run Spitfire and then we stopped running Spitfire and we just had all of this time on our hands. So he said, you know, I just think that you've got quite an interesting kind of outlook. You've got quite an interesting life going up and down to London all the time. Why don't you, why don't you do a YouTube thing? And I had a thought about, thought about it and I thought, well, actually I am in an unusual position because I'm not actually vying for a career as a composer. So I can just be brutally honest about life as a composer and discuss things that are kind of, you know topics that maybe people don't talk about how much they get paid to write a film score is was one of my first kind of really successful vlogs you know how uh, you need to diversify uh, you know things like um how to work on several jobs simultaneously stuff that is like career suicide to admit to <laughs> but i'm not really vying for a career so i could be honest but the one thing i did decide to do is to not be one of those um, in the good old days types, you know, to, I think that most people would say if I was to be really responsible uh, in my vlog, it's just to warn people against it at all odds, because it's a massively competitive, um, uh, uh, you know, tiny niche of the industry where very few people actually uh, get to be able to uh, make a, a true living from it. But I didn't want it to be that. I want it to be, it to be a positive look, but an honest one. And, you know, so I talk a lot about narcissism. As I, I think that, and it's for me, if anything, it's been a catharsis to actually kind of go, that was mental that you let that mm. happen. And it's just, you know, you, you tell these stories and people are like, go, what? And you're like, yeah, yeah, more fool me. And uh, hopefully people can learn from those mistakes without making them themselves. And the, the vlogs and, and the various tutorials and anything else that you, you put out there, they're packed with really useful practical information but there, there's so much more than that you managed to make fantastic storytelling films with great production values clever editing um all about music technology so were you inspired by the likes of people like Casey Neistat or, or other vloggers and how much of the type of production that you put into your YouTube channel has come from your own work in film and tv and working with directors 
Well, it's interesting, actually. I wish I'd done it before because I now understand the editing process, which is a really fundamentally important part of post-production and I'm part of post-production crews. Um, I wish I'd done it before in that respect. Yes, I, I was very much inspired by the likes of Casey Neistat and for a while was very much aping his kind of editing style and, and stuff. You know, for me, it was interesting, like, just looking at someone like Casey Neistat, who, for people who don't know, he's, he used to be a daily vlogger and the production values were insane. And it taught me a lot of very good things. Firstly, that really, to get to that level, you just have to give up your life. It was clear that mm-hmm. he was having awful marriage problems and wasn't doing anything else. Um, but the other thing was that, okay, how is he doing that? Well, he's, he's jump cutting, so he's not delivering these bits of dialogue in what I call oneers. He's, he's making mistakes and he's editing around those mistakes. So I think that that was important. But I, there's a couple of things that I think it's really important to talk about where youtube's concerned i can see young up-and-coming composers and artists who have a youtube presence i I think it does put them ahead of others in 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 competition because it just enables people into their worlds to understand what makes them tick but also to see that they're really rather decent people and there's one composer in particular a guy called dan Keane who I highly recommend uh, watching. And he's, he's in, intelligent and, you know, he has a, a, a wiseness that b- betrays his years. But he's becoming hugely successful because people just have gone, looked on his YouTube thing and gone, this guy looks really nice I, and he's really, he's, he's good at what he does. I really want to work with him. And he's working with some really big um, acts at the moment. It's very, very exciting. So I think that's one thing I think people should consider a YouTube presence. But the other thing I think I'm particularly fascinated in is the fear of using music in YouTube by other creators. And if I could fight for anything is for the music industry to stop demonising YouTube and its possibilities because it is a massive opportunity. And I think what really frightens me is that writing music to picture just isn't happening on the biggest broadcaster on the planet. And if I could change anything, it would be that. And it would be to encourage creators to possibly get composers to, you know, score, score their stuff. Because these creators are getting out to many, many more people than, say, something like EastEnders in in Britain is getting out to. So, you know, and I I think that something that's not happening on YouTube, but I I mark my words, I think that you will see it happening is super long-form dramas. I think people just making their own dramas and stuff. And I just think that we just need to be in in a position to be able to work out how you know, music makers can work with YouTubers uh, without just simply de- stripping them and demonetizing them and copyright striking them, putting the fear of them. You know, if you get three copyright strikes, um, your channel just gets taken down, deleted. You know, and these things take a long, long, long time to build up, the followings and all of this kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, if there's one thing I, I would wish to get involved with is just more of a, just a bringing those two worlds together because I think it's really exciting. And are there channels to do that with, is there a way to, to speak to people at YouTube and is there, a, is there already a conversation happening about this? No, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping to st- open up channels with YouTube. Google's around the corner from Spitfire. So right. um, <laughs> we've been kind of dinging on their bell because I just think, well, I mean, for example, when I go to the, I understand why, why the music industry doesn't like YouTube. I completely get it. And I don't like being ripped off myself. Um, but, as a YouTuber, I, I find it daunting that whenever I go to the Ivan Avellos, which is a yearly, well, I'd let myself out once a year, um, 
uh, as a member of Basca, who make who do the Ivan Novellos, I just find it really shocking when whenever they say YouTube at those uh, award ceremonies, the whole audience boos, and it's just wow. like this is you're just well, you see, well, I I have post-traumatic stress disorder for the industry from the way it treated sheet music, the way it treated Gary Newman where he tr- when he tried to bring his synthesizer on stage at Top of the Pops, you know, the way that we had to have ships moored in international water to be able to play American tracks on, on the radio, the way that the industry totally buried its head about MP3s, about streaming. And it's going to do it again with this massive thing, which is user-created content. And I think you, you touched on it earlier. You know, I think that we are, to quote the words of Jack Conte, the um, founder of Patreon, I think we're on the verge of a second renaissance. I think that this is going to be the golden era of, uh, of, of, for creators, and they're in control. And yet again, the music industry is putting itself to the back of the queue and will be yet again there with the begging bowl when it's too late. It's a really good point, and it's sort of applying the same principle that you guys have at Spitfire with with taking the musicians along for the ride, paying the royalties, embracing the changes in technology, and finding a way to make it work so that you know ultimately it, it takes us all to to a better place further down the line. I totally agree. There's something someone said on Twitter the other day is I didn't get into the music industry to sell T-shirts. And it's like, yeah, and that's why you're being exploited. Because someone, <laughs> someone else is designing your T-shirts and selling them and taking all the cash. You know, <laughs> this so-called golden era of music, when was that? When, when, did, when was, was the music profession something that people made money out of? There was yeah. this point where maybe Led Zeppelin used to tour America in a big kind of Boeing jet. But that's because they took their... their um, merchandising rights off the arenas and you know they didn't make any money out of singles they didn't release any (laughs) um one other feature about um in your youtube videos that i absolutely love are your early morning and i mean very early morning dog walks to the top of arthur's seat i'm a scotsman living in the south of england so uh i thoroughly enjoy watching those um the early morning thing is that i i guess it it goes back to your work as a, a baker and, yeah. and being used to it. But how important is it? Do you find those are the moments in the day when you can be inspired and you and you do have those great ideas and, and the creativity sort of sparks? Curiously, I mean, I think the walks are very... Uh, the reason I, I feature those walks on my my vlog is to encourage composers to get out and about because I think that we don't look after ourselves physically or mentally. And in fact... I just think the worst place place to come up with musical ideas, composition, is in front of a computer. I think they're just Mm. not synonymous with true creativity. So, yes, those walks, I I find, very important to solve problems, you know, um, to think about the next thing that I'm going to compose or the next scene that I'm doing, all of that kind of stuff. So, so absolutely. But, yes, it does come from baking. My my circadian rhythms were set uh, in, in my, my late teens as a baker. Um, I, and I find, you know, within... When I'm actually in the studio in those early hours, I find them highly productive times because there are no distractions, um, as opposed to maybe being the most um, creative moments. But, yeah, I... I, if, I, if a week goes by without me doing at least two or three proper early starts, four o'clock, I, st- I really start to feel it because it's, it's my kind of special time. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I'm, a, I'm an early bird myself, but not quite 4am, but I can totally relate to the idea of 
it not necessarily being about creativity but being really productive it almost feels like you've got head start you've you've done the work before the day has even begun so you can then just take your foot off the gas a little bit and um get on with the rest of your day my my wife really notices it when she gets up and if i've done three hours in the studio and have taken the dogs for a walk and are getting the kids up i honestly i feel like superman and i'm just (laughs) i'm just so hyper I don't know about you, but I also get really frustrated when someone interrupts my early morning. If oh, my yes. wife gets up earlier than normal, I'm like, what are you doing? It's, it's my time. <laughs> yes. No, I totally agree. Um, just to tie things up, I, I wonder if you have any, you know, a, a key piece of advice that you could give to perhaps someone looking to start out as a uh, on a career in media composition or in any part of music technology? What's the, the one thing that you've learned that you, you wish you'd known when you were starting out? That it takes a lot of time and that if you're not enjoying the journey, you shouldn't get involved in it. There is never a point where you get there. It's all about the journey. And I think that that's really crucial. And I I see it in some young people sometimes, just this this really damaging impatience. And it's like you've got to get experience under your belt, got to listen and learn from others, watch them make mistakes, and learn from those mistakes. But I think that you've got to be into the journey. And, you know, I think that something that people don't talk about is that, you know, people don't always like it. It's this funny reverence that we have for something we might may have decided to do when we were five and you know i've had three five-year-olds and they've none of them have been in a position to make career choices at that age (laughs) and i think that what you have to do is is it's not just being in it for the journey but to be open-minded and i've i've been diverted by spitfire audio and i'm the happiest i've ever been in my life and that's not because i feel i'm underachieving or have turned my back on my goals i've just allowed the tide to take me and um and instead of fighting it um it's it's been a beautiful thing christian henson thank you so much for taking the time to do this really fascinating to have the opportunity to chat to you absolute pleasure thanks for having me mm-hmm.